Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. Go to swimpractice.com to check it out. Okay, Dr. Jordan Anderson, how are you, my friend? I'm good. I'm good. It's good to be with you, Brett. Yeah, you too. Where are you coming from today? Calling in from Cambridge, Massachusetts. Uh, little, I think a little colder than where you are right now, though. Yeah, LA's, LA's not too bad. It's been pretty warm, but a little chilly today. But uh, So just tell us, you know, what's going on in your life right now. We can kind of let everyone in on, you know, who you are and how we know each other and that sort of thing. But just give us an update on what's going on in your life right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like probably most of your listeners are, uh, have never heard of me before. Um, but yeah, I guess a little background. So, um, so I, I was a, a swimmer at Auburn. And, and so you, you were my coach. That's our connection. I was, uh, I grew up in Roanoke, Virginia. Um, and then, uh, you know, made my way to Auburn uh, for swimming. And so I was there from 2006 to 2010. And, uh, and swam with uh, actually three different coaches. So I started with David Marsh. And then, um, and then when he uh, left Auburn, Richard took over, I swam with Richard. And then, uh, and then, um, you know, after, after Richard's passing, you were, you were sort of, you were the head coach and, and took over from there. Um, but, you know, since um, finishing up the college, um, I, uh, it was a while ago now, um, I uh, finished college. I ended up um, moving to the UK. I had a fellowship, um, a road scholarship, uh, which, you know, we can talk a little bit more about that, but, but basically uh, spent time in the UK studying um, uh, sort of public health and anthropology um, came back to the U.S. really interested in, in sort of healthcare delivery and how our healthcare system works and doesn't work. Um, ended up working at a startup for two years, kind of thinking about how we uh, improve our healthcare system, and then made my way to medical school here uh, in Boston, where I uh, finished up uh, at Harvard Med School in 2018, and then have been a, a, a internal medicine resident physician uh, at Brigham and Women's Hospital here in Boston, which is one of the, uh, the Harvard affiliated teaching hospitals. So now, um, spend, uh, you know, my time taking care of patients in the hospital. Uh, and, uh, really since March, it's been, um, you know, pretty crazy, uh, cr pretty crazy existence taking care of patients, uh, with COVID and, uh, and also the patients without COVID as well as there's, there's been a lot of challenges associated with both. Well, listen, man, your, your story is so relevant to, to what I'm doing on this podcast, because you're a, a a couple time national champion, um, winning team member at Auburn. Um, so you've had the experience of winning national championships. Uh, and, and then you've gone on to be a doctor in the front lines of kind of this whole COVID situation and, and the relevance of what's going on in the world with that right now. And so I, I want to pick your brain on both those aspects, but so, so let's just go back to the beginning. Our, our stories are a little intertwined because we both started back at Auburn around the same time you started as a freshman. I started as, as an assistant coach in, in 2006, probably just a couple of months before you turned up as a freshman. So in terms of, um, picking Auburn itself, I, I don't imagine you were one of the top recruits in the country at the time. Uh, that's just not the way that, that wasn't David's philosophy in terms of bringing in people. He, he was better at uh, finding people that fit a system and, and fit a team and that he could mold into champions. And so I, he definitely saw something in you. Uh, what, what did you see in Auburn and what do you think it was that David saw in you at that particular point in time? Yeah, I, you know, it's so interesting to think back on. I was, uh, you know, I, I grew up swimming in uh, Southwest Virginia uh, for kind of a small club team, had a great, great, great age group coach, Brent St. Pierre, um, who I, I owe so many things to. But you know, he, he was one of those age group coaches. He didn't push me super hard. He knew that I had talent and he kind of just let me develop on my own. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we swam in some, uh, you know, mostly sort of regional meets, um, and then occasionally a couple of national meets. And I think that's where I caught the eye of maybe, I think Chad Onkin was the Auburn assistant coach who I think initially, mm -hmm. uh, saw me swim at like a junior national meet or something like that. But for me, you know, growing up, um, I, I actually thought I was going to go to the Naval Academy, um, uh, kind of all through growing up. I, I was just very interested in kind of, uh, public service and wanted to have a career that was, focused on, you know, not just myself, but on others. And 
Um, and I grew up uh, going to this Christmas invitational meet, up, uh, an MBAC uh, meet at the Naval Academy every Christmas. Um, and those were just some of my most like profound memories growing up. We're going up there. I got that's where I first swam against uh, Michael Phelps when I was probably like, you know, 14 years old or something. And it was just, you know, these kind of incredible moments that I remember growing up swimming. Um, where, you know, uh, I was in this place, I was seeing all these, you know, uh, college students in their midshipman uniforms. I just thought, wow, that's like really incredible to, to be able to serve your country and do something like that. And so actually kind of growing up, that's where I thought that I was going to end up for college. As I was going through the recruiting process, um, it was between Navy, UVA, and Auburn. And Auburn was like this total surprise. I thought, you know, mm. uh, I just remember getting getting a call from David and uh, and thinking like, did he mess up? Is there somebody else? Like, is there, is there another Jordan Anderson who's a good swimmer that he was supposed to call? Um, and uh, yeah, so it, it was very surprising to me that they wanted me to come for a visit. Uh, but, you know, I was excited and, and wanted to take the opportunity. And, um, and, you know, once I, once I stepped foot on campus, then it was like, well, this is a totally different environment. This is, this is something totally different than anything I'd ever experienced before. Um, and I think for me, seeing just how much passion the team, everybody on the team had for this, this commitment to excellence. I'd never seen anything like that before. I'd never seen people so focused on, uh, on just the, like the smallest details of how they wanted to be excellent in all aspects of their life. Um, and then how to, to channel that into their swimming. So that, that was what really spoke to me when I, when I went to Auburn, I was in this, uh, you know, one of PK's, uh, our strength and conditioning coach, Brian Karkowski, he would put on these, uh, these circuit trainings, which I, you know, other people on your podcast have talked about these before other Auburn folks have talked about these. They were just these kind of grueling, um, you know, multi-hour circuits that, um, yeah, that, that were just like, you you, you know, you were destined to fail the circuit. You couldn't, you couldn't actually complete the circuit, but you really had to dig deep to, to, uh, to demonstrate, uh, you know, what you could potentially do, whether that was, you know, you know, hanging from a towel on a bar mm -hmm. or, you know, uh, you know, running on a treadmill or whatever it was. Um, and I just, I saw that when I went on my visit and saw this is, this is what I, what I want to be a part of. And then, you know, I think, um, you know, D David uh, recruited me really, you know, not, I wouldn't say he recruited me super hard. I, I, as you said, I was definitely not a top recruit. I think I was maybe like a 48, mid 48 second hundred butterflyer. Mm. Um, you know, I wasn't a top recruit by any means. Um, but I think he, you know, I, I think he saw that I had um, some potential and, and had the ability to develop. And, um, and that was really what, uh, what Auburn's program was all about. I mean, there were mm. always, always a couple of you know, really star swimmers on that team. But I think when you really look back through a lot of those championship teams mm. uh, in the 2000s, what you saw was a lot of names you probably don't recognize. Um, you know, they weren't uh, people who had won a lot of Olympic medals, although there, there were certainly some of those. Uh, it was a lot of folks who just, uh, you know, came in, got better and scored points and, um, yeah, that, that was definitely, I think, sort of David's approach to recruiting and how he tried to build that team. Uh, but I think, you know, from my experience, though, our freshman class was really big. I don't know. You may you may or may not remember this, but I think we had something like 18 or 19 freshmen oh, wow. on, in my freshman guys class. And uh, only only nine of us actually uh, finished the full four years. Uh, so there was there was some attrition there as well. But um, but I think it spoke to sort of David's approach of like really wanting to bring in people who he could develop. And if you weren't going to develop that, you know, that was sort of a different, a different can of worms. Well, there was also the mentality I know back then of bring in a bunch of guys and let's see who can make it through this. And the ones that make it through are the ones that we want, you know, <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's kind of that mentality of survival of the fittest in a way. Um, but it's also, you know, it's a way to galvanize men together to say, Hey, if you, it's, it's almost like that mentality of going through a boot camp, you know, and that's kind of what it was back then. It was very much a boot camp mentality. You could probably do a few more things back then that you might not be able to get away with now in terms of <laughs> pushing people to, to certain limits. Um, but I, I do understand that you had this feeling once you got there of kind of almost like this imposter syndrome, like you didn't belong. Was there, was there, was there that feeling early on as a freshman? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely had this sense. It's not some, it's not a sort of, it's not something that I 
think I totally understood at the time, but I think since I've you know read a lot about this, it's it's actually quite common in the medical field. This this idea of imposter syndrome that uh, you know that that you're just waiting for somebody to find out you're not actually supposed to be there, you know, and, and that you're not good enough, uh, and that somebody's gonna you know come and and let you know that actually they made a mistake and, and uh, you know you're not supposed to be a part of the team. And that well, was why would you think that? that I, you know, I, I think. I think some of it is just kind of coming from this background where I, I was coming from a smaller team. I never swum at, you know, at, at like a, you know, some of the big national meets. I hadn't broken some of the records that some of my, uh, you know, some of the other folks in my, in my freshman class had, had broken. And then you, and then you look up the ranks, right? You look and you see guys like Cesar Cielo, you, you know, guys like Matt Target, uh, you know, the leaders on that team had Olympic medals, right? And, uh, and I was still like trying to make sure I could get like an Olympic trout cut. Right. So I think that, um, I think that there was, you know, there was just this sense of, uh, you know, do I really belong here? Uh, and that question, I think really for most of my freshman year was really, uh, the question that I wrestled with the whole year, trying to decide, do I really belong here? Am I good enough to be here? I could go, I could go swim at, you know, a different team, I could be their top butterfly, or I could mm -hmm. be on every relay. And is this really where I belong? Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think for me that I, you know, I think wrestling with that question early on, really became the motivation for me, um, going into my sophomore year, especially, but I think it really uh, catalyzed the rest of my swimming career was, uh, you know, I think sort of seeing that, no, I actually do belong. I, you know, I saw myself get better day after day. And I think what I found to be the sort of, um, you know, cure to the imposter syndrome or the, whatever you want to call it, uh, was the process. It was just by, you know, Nick Saban calls it the process. I probably shouldn't talk about Nick Saban. I'm an Auburn grab, but, uh, but, you know, he calls it the process and it's just buying into the program. It's buying into the mentality. And at Auburn, that was, excellence. It was buying into, you got to do the extra little stuff to get better every single day. It's not, you know, it's not just about, uh, the big things. It's about the little things too. And David harped on this so much. You know, I remember, I remember, um, uh, going to like a, you know, an away meet. And I remember, um, going up the elevator and David said, what are you doing? Go up the elevator, go up the stairs. You're an athlete. And it was like, Oh yeah. You know, I mean, you know, that's another, you know, never something that would have dawned on me, but that was his approach was you're going to do everything athletically. You're not going to get out with your knee on the pool deck. You're going to get out with your foot on the pool deck. Uh, you know, if you're not spending 20 minutes after practice working on strokes and, you know, turns and uh, starts and things like that, then, you know, you don't belong on the team. That's not, that's not who we are as a, as a team. I think that that just that ethic and that, um, that philosophy really, um, I, I just bought into it and I said, all right, if, if this is what it takes to be an Auburn swimmer, that's what I'm going to, that's what I'm going to buy into. Uh, I think that was, that was definitely part of it. Um, and then I think the other part was just having awesome mentors, just having older guys on the team that I could look up to, uh, you know, guys like John Scott, who, you know, a lot of your, a lot of your listeners probably won't know John Scott's name either, but he was a guy who had walked onto the Auburn team had worked his way, just, you know, just really toughed his way out. Uh, and he was a captain on the team when I was a freshman and he, I think he got second at NCAAs in the 200 fly that year when we won. I mean, it was, uh, you know, it was guys like that who just, they took the time at the end of practice, you know, Jeremy Knowles, Doug Van Wee, some of the like older guys who graduated, who just take the time to really invest in the freshmen, uh, guys like me, that was like, okay, I belong here. These guys think I belong here. Uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to stick it out. I'm going to work for it. And really uh, we can talk about this as well, but at some point that philosophy translates into life as well. I mean, you've got to feel the same thing going through medical school at some point where there's probably a lot of really smart people. There's probably a lot of people that work really hard, but there's, there's also those things that are pulling you in different directions and you've got to make decisions at that point of like, who do I want to be and how do I want to get through this? And can I do this? Am I good enough? Um, those principles follow you, I'd imagine, right? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it, and then it's like the weight is just so much more magnified because you're wondering, 
am I smart enough? Am I capable enough to take care of this person's life? Mm. Right. This is not just, am I good enough to be on this team and, uh, you know, wear these colors or, mm. uh, you know, get on the block for these guys. Um, now it's, now it's a whole new level of, am I smart enough? Am I talented enough to take care of this really complicated patient in the ICU? Do I know enough if I worked hard enough? Um, and, and again, I think it's the exact same mentality of like, you got to rely on the people around you, the program, the, you know, the education that you've developed over time and the, the, the ways of thinking that you've developed through, you know, through your education to rely on that kind of, you know, um, you know, stuff to, in order to, you know, make you feel like you're able to do it. Yeah. Now, during this time, uh, David decided to leave the program after your freshman year, and uh, we, we bring in a new head coach by the name of Richard Quick. And now I know Richard had an enormous impact on you in many different ways. Talk to me about Richard and what you, what you learned from him over the time, short time. Yeah, I mean, Richard was just incredible. You know, I, I remember that day when David said he was going to be leaving really well. We were sitting on the pool deck and it was kind of an impromptu meeting. I, you know, I don't think anyone really saw it coming on the team, or at least, it, you know, I didn't. Um, and he said he was going to be stepping down. Uh, but he said, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't leave this program unless I knew I was leaving it in better hands than mm-hmm. it's already in. Yeah. And he said, uh, uh, many, you know, some of you may know Richard Quick, some of you may not, but he is a world-class swim coach and, and he's a better coach than I am. And I thought, whoa, that's a lot coming from David Marsh. I mean, he, this guy's won, you know, at that time he'd won four men's titles in a row. Um, and uh, yeah, and so I, I was like, all right, well, let's see how this goes. You know, um, and, you know, it's like from the very first day that Richard came on the pool deck, you could just tell this guy, he just had so much energy. Mm. so much enthusiasm for the sport and uh and it it was it was relatively clear early on to me just in my conversations with him uh that he he didn't see swimming as just a a sport you know he didn't see it as like you know just a uh, a competition and you know who's gonna who's gonna win who can get the fastest time he saw swimming as a medium through which you uh, learned about yourself. Through mm. th- it, it was a way that you could probe to the depths of who you were and learn new things about what you were capable of. Mm. Um, and I think for me, my relationship with Richard was just so much about finding my own confidence and, and finding sort of a belief in my own abilities. Um, you know, he was just a, just a tremendous um, motivator as well. You know, he could just, he could really tap into uh, the psyche of the person of his swimmer and figure out, you know, what do I need? How do I motivate this person? You know, that's what the great motivators do. The great coaches, they can know this person responds really well to encouragement and positive feedback. Uh, you know, this person, they, they have a chip on their shoulder. They need a little bit of like negative negative, you know, feedback to get him going. I, I remember, uh, you know, uh, Colton Norris, one of the guys on our team who was also, you know, one of these guys, not a super highly recruited swimmer, but came in and just got better and better. Uh, and I remember him having kind of a, you know, not so great swim and Richard pulling him aside and saying, you're better than that. You know, what are you doing out there? And that was the type of motivation that Colton needed. Some other, some other swimmers that would have kind of crushed them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but Richard, he could, he kind of could sense that he, he knew how to motivate people in that way. Um, but I think more than anything, what he did so incredibly was he just helped you to believe in yourself. You know, he just, he, he helped you to see what he saw in you. Um, and for me, that was really critical. Um, my sophomore year, I ended up getting injured as uh, it's probably like maybe like October, November, I just like uh, got a lot of tendonitis in my shoulder and I just, I couldn't do butterfly. I mean, I just like couldn't get my arm over my shoulder. And, uh, and Richard, uh, you know, I was pretty bummed and, you know, trying to, you know, sort of figure out like, you know, how do I get this healed up? And he came to me, he said, don't worry about your shoulder. That's fine. Don't worry about your shoulder. It's going to get better. He said, uh, he said, but, but you can't swim right now, but you can kick and if you should become, the fastest kicker on this team. And if you don't become the fastest kicker on this team, you have no excuse. Mm. And I remember thinking, yeah, wow. Okay. 
And, uh, and I, I just focused for like two and a half months straight on underwater kicking. I remember doing sets of underwater kicking uh, where, you know, we were doing 200s and I had, you know, I was just doing underwater kicks and kicking out like 15 meters on every wall. And that was, that was something I never would imagine I could have done before, but that was all I could do. And, you know, that was what I was supposed to do. And I remember um, SECs that, um, that spring as my sophomore year, I hadn't, I didn't even make the SEC team as a freshman. And as a sophomore, uh, you know, I'd done all this work kicking out and, you know, getting better at my underwaters and went to SECs and got second, uh, you know, to Alexi Paninsky and, uh, you know, kicked out, you know, 75% of the race or however much percent, you know, basically right to the 15 meter mark on every wall. Uh, but that was the type of thing that Richard could do. He could just, he could take an obstacle and just say, this is an opportunity. You know, this is, this is, the, you know, and, and kind of shift that, uh, that sort of your mindset about, about, you know, a problem. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Um, often I talk about athletics, but I don't get a chance really to talk about the academic side of college. Um, how were you able to balance doing what you're doing and being pushed the way you are and challenged mentally, physically to your limits, and then still being able to be successful in the classroom. Talk to me about the classroom side of things a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I, I was a good student uh, in high school and, and um, I think I came to Auburn with sort of this um, plan to pursue, uh, you know, a, a health oriented career. And that required, you know, taking a lot of tough classes, you know, um, the pre-med sort of track was, uh, the, the major was biomedical sciences at Auburn. And so, um, you know, it was a lot of science classes, a lot of labs, um, you know, uh, I ended up working on research as well, undergraduate, uh, science research when I was, when I was in college as well. And, you know, I think that the, you know, uh, for me, at least I, I've always found that, uh, that balance is really important in life. Um, and I think it's something that I kind of figured out even before college was that um, for me, like focusing too much in one thing, I would eventually just sort of burn out in, in it. And so, uh, so for me, it was sort of, I needed to find balance between my athletic and my academic work uh, so that one could be an outlet for the other. Um, and, and so that was, I think, really important to me. You know, I, I think one of the other things that, um, you know, that I, that I came to find about uh, my, uh, you know, my academic work um, was that it, it was also a way that I could contribute to the team. Um, and that was that I, I think, especially early on my freshman year, my sophomore year, when I, you know, I hadn't scored in a big meet yet, you know, I, I was just trying to find some ways that I could contribute to the team, ways that I could, uh, you know, be a positive influence on the team. And, you know, getting a 4.0 in a semester helped our team, right? I mean, it helped from, a, uh, from an NCAA standpoint. Um, and, and I think it was kind of cool that over the course of um, the four years that I was there, the swimming team, um, and this, this carried on after I left, I think you, you probably know more about this than I do, but, uh, but my understanding is that, you know, just the, the GPAs of the entire team just kind of slowly started to uh, to drift up. And I think that that was a really positive thing that, that happened on our team was we, I think as a team recognized, you know, this is, you know, our athletic careers are going to come to an end at some point, we need to have something else to rely on it. And our, and our academics is very important there. Um, so uh, yeah, for me, it was, I think it was really about balance and, and trying to, to contribute. Yeah. There's a couple um, th last things I want to talk about in terms of college. And one of them is, uh, the final year of Richard Quick and and kind of finding out about his brain cancer and and then ultimately um, having to compete for Richard at the 2009 championships and then I also want to talk about your your Rhodes scholarship a little bit so just let's go into kind of Richard's diagnosis and then ultimate passing uh, and the impact that that had on you um, how how did you first hear about uh, Richard and and his diagnosis. We, you know, we, this was, this was kind of right after finals or maybe it was right in the middle of finals uh, of my junior year uh, in, in 2000, this was 2008. Yes. Yeah, so uh, going into 2009, December, mm -hmm. 2008. And um, 
I remember coming on the pool deck. We were, I think I'd finished finals. I think we we're about to start our uh, kind of pre-Christmas training, you know, mm -hmm. sort of usually a fairly intensive period of training that we would do uh, before we get a couple of days off to go home with family over Christmas. And, um, and uh, you know, I, I basically remember, um, you know, Richard wasn't there. I was like, well, yeah, I haven't seen Richard. I actually didn't see, you know, I started to think back and started to realize, yeah, I haven't seen Richard in a couple of days actually, which is, you know, sometimes uh, you just wouldn't see a coach on the pool deck and that was okay, but it'd been days. And, and then I remember, you know, didn't see Richard at all through that whole period of training. And, um, and I remember uh, being at home um, for the Christmas holiday and getting a call from Tyler McGill, who's, you know, one of my roommates, one of my closest friends, um, and uh, he basically, you know, told told me that Richard had a brain tumor and that he wasn't going to be able to coach coach us the rest of the of the year. He was the cat the captain along with Matt Target that year, and uh, yeah, it's just I mean, it was uh, just shocking, you know, just one of the it's it's the type of news that you just don't expect to hear, mm. um, and um, and I remember just thinking very optimistically, really. I remember thinking, well, okay, well, he'll get through this. Like, that's okay. You know, like there's treatment, there's surgery. Um, you know, we're going to be praying for him. We're going to be thinking about him. We're going to, you know, push hard as a team for him, uh, but he'll get through this and, and it'll be okay. I remember just thinking, you know, very optimistically about it and, and, you know, coming back on campus. And when you saw him in person right there at the beginning, he looked fairly like himself uh, still, you know, he may be a little fatigued, but um, but he, you know, he, he looked himself and he was very encouraging. He wanted us all to, uh, you know, to, you know, do our best and, and, and keep going. Um, then I think, you know, you fast forward a couple months and, you know, Richard really had deteriorated a lot. And it, 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 I don't think any of us actually knew that that was happening as much in the background. Um, you know, we were extremely focused on, and you, you, you know, you were really the, the cast, you and Tyler and, and Matt, I think like really were just kept everybody on the same page of, you know, like we have a job to do. This is what Richard wants us to do. And we were, we were incredibly focused on that. Um, but I remember seeing him uh, in like February or March and it was like, he looked like a different person. You know, he just really declined a lot. Um, and I think that's when it really set into me that this might not be going very well for Richard. Um, and, uh, you know, <clears throat> um, you know, it, it, and obviously we know that, that he, he continued to, to not do very well over the course of that spring. Um, but from a team standpoint, you know, I think we all had just sort of bought into this notion that, uh, that we were going to, we were going to do something big that year. And, um, mm -hmm. And, and that, you know, I think that that was really this kind of driving motivation going through the Christmas training that year. We, we usually go on a, uh, would go on a Christmas uh, trip to, you know, Florida, train there for a week or something, come back. And, uh, and I remember you were just like, we're not going anywhere. We're going to stay here in Auburn and we're going to train and, uh, and we're going to get better. And, and that's what we did. I remember the, those like 10 days of training in Auburn after uh, we had heard about Richard getting sick, just being just an incredible uh, period of training um, where we were all just so focused on, on, you know, what we wanted to achieve that year. Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot that has been made about our performance at the 2009 championship, but not a lot of people fully understand the backstory and um, the way that that really galvanized us as a unit. And then um, that kind of transpired into the performances that we had at, at the 2009. Do you remember specifically hearing about Richard being ill during the championships? Um, do you remember us talking about that at all? I remember it coming up for sure. Um, you know, it, it was, I think it was something that was always in the back of all of our minds that, uh, that this person who had just been such a profound mentor and, um, and, you know, uh, you know, almost kind of, you know, father figure type person to many of us um, was, was very ill. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I just remember going into that, uh, that championship period. We had come off this SEC's meet that, um, you know, we, we just, it, that was one of my favorite, you know, second to the NCAA meet, that SEC meet, we were at home at Auburn um, 
and we just we had an amazing meet it was just there were so many amazing swims i think we had like five up in the hundred fly or something at, at that secs and you know swam really well um and i think kind of coming into the ncas we just had this um just this momentum and this enthusiasm, but also this like drive that like we had this, this deeper reason why we were here to, you know, to win. Um, we wanted to do it for Richard and we wanted to, uh, to, uh, you know, honor his, you know, at that point we, we didn't know that, that he was going to pass, but we really wanted to honor him. Uh, and the only way that we knew, we knew how, which was to just go out and compete and, and, uh, and perform. Yeah. And it was an amazing championship. A lot of great memories from that 2009 win. And um, yeah, I think it's just one of those special teams that they'll always be super close. Uh, it, was, it was more than just swimming at that point. So uh, they're the ones you remember the most. But um, ultimately, Richard passed and that, that kind of had a lasting effect on all of us. How, how did his passing ultimately affect you, you think? He, he was probably one of the, uh, the people that, was, that I've ever been most close to who passed. Um, uh, you know, quite suddenly like that. Um, and I don't know if I really knew how to grieve. I'm not sure that, uh, any of us on the team really knew what, uh, you know, kind of grieving looked like or felt like, or, you know, I, I, none of us had a model for like how we were supposed to respond to something like that. Um, I remember we all saw Richard, uh, at, we, we, you know, if we won a championship, we'd get to roll tumors corner, which is kind of a great Auburn tradition. You take toilet paper and roll, roll the, uh, the oak trees on, um, uh, right in the middle of campus. And, uh, and I remember Richard came to that and we all got to see him, uh, but he was really in rough shape. And that was the last time I saw Richard. Um, that was probably in like April. And then uh, we got the news in June that, that he had passed and, um, and we all flew down to Austin, Texas uh, for the funeral. And the, just the, the experience, I think, of trying to kind of grieve through his passing um, is not something that any of us, I think, were really prepared for. And we were just, we were coming off this, this incredible win we were going into, uh, you know, at least for my class, we were going into our senior year and, uh, and I, I, myself and Tyler McGill had been tasked with being the, um, the captains for that team. And I just remember this kind of uh, tremendous feeling of responsibility of, um, along with Tyler, I think, you know, just trying to figure out how to shepherd this men's team um, through that year. And through the emotional, um, you know, the emotional processing of losing, a, you know, someone who's so close to you, to all of you, right? And while also at the same time, trying to figure out, you know, how do we try to repeat this, this magical thing we just did, right? You know, we, yeah. we just, uh, you know, accomplished this incredible achievement that I don't think any of us necessarily thought we really could do. And we did it, right? And then trying to, to do both of those things and at the same time, I think was really, uh, it was tough. I, I, my, my senior year, uh, while junior year was just this incredible year, senior year was a tough year yeah. uh, in a lot of ways. And then I think, um, you know, I think you sort of uh, couple on, you know, with that, um, it, it, you said you want to talk a little bit more about the Rhodes Scholarship, but, but then that created, you know, this additional dynamic during my senior year where I was trying to kind of had a lot, lot of things going on at the same time um, uh, that, that I think just sort of made that whole year just a very, very challenging year in many ways. Yeah. Talk to me about this Rhodes Scholarship. It's uh, super interesting. And one of the things I distinctly remember you telling me is that you have to go through this interview process and uh, they get all of you guys into a room and it's kind of, you also have this kind of social event where all of the candidates, the final candidates are together and part of the last process is kind of socializing together. And um, I remember you distinctly telling me that people were kind of putting on a show and saying what they thought the, the people around them wanted to hear. And you were just kind of being yourself like, oh, I'm, <laughs> I'm just a regular dude. And, and, you know, and you were kind of the most interesting person in the room because you were just being yourself in a way. And then uh, then you end up winning this thing. Is that correct? Yeah, I, 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 that is like relatively true, I think. Um, yeah, I mean, I. I uh, 
I so so kind of coming into that senior year, I uh, you know as you mentioned, like academically had, had been doing well, and uh, ended up going to meet with a, um, a guy named Paul Harris, who is uh, the director of uh, of scholarships at at Auburn, and uh, was you know wanted to talk to him about potentially trying to find some scholarship money to pay for uh, medical school, and um, and he's like, well, you know, you could uh, you know you can apply for these types of scholarships, but you know, what you ought to do is you, you, you got athletics, you got research, you got good grades. You, you know, I had done some community service work as well. He's like, you know, you, you should at least try to apply for something like the Rhodes scholarship or the Marshall scholar uh, scholarship. And, you know, you're not going to win them, but <laughs> it's good practice. And, you know, you'll, you'll, uh, you know, you, you know, get some opportunities. And if, if you get an interview, then you can put that you're a Rhodes finalist or a Marshall finalist on your, on your resume. And I thought, well, okay, you know, I'll go home and think about it. And I remember, uh, you know, I, I talked to my dad, who's just one of my, you know, greatest mentors. And, um, and he was like, well, you know, it sounds like, sounds like you could have a good application. You know, maybe you should think about it. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, what, like if Richard were here, I, I probably would have asked Richard and, you know, what, what would Richard have told me? And I remember just thinking, you know, Richard was one of those people who uh, really allowed you to, you know, think, wow, like I am capable of that. I could yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and I remember thinking like, yeah, Richard would tell me to apply. And it was a big application. You had to like write multiple essays. You had to get like eight or eight letters of recommendation. Um, you know, if you ended up getting an interview, you're going to have to go do this whole interview process. And so I, you know, I put together the application materials thinking, you know, if I get an interview, that's, that's awesome, right? Like that's the goal here. Uh, you know, if I, if I can get an interview, that'd be great. And so, uh, you know, um, get all my, my application materials together. I think you actually wrote one of my letters. So yeah. thank you for that. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, and submitted it and then found out a couple of weeks later that I got an interview and, uh, was like, all right, you know, this is great. And, um, it, you know, just as you said, you know, so the, the way the interview was set up was that there's kind of like a, um, kind of mingling event the night before, uh, I was in Birmingham. And there were, you know, I think I was like one of two people, two or three people who weren't like an Ivy League, you know, student, but, you know, everybody else was from like Harvard and Yale and Stanford. And, um, and there was like me and a, a girl who ran track at, uh, at Florida State, uh, who were like the only like public, you know, uh, public school kids. Mm. And um, yeah, and so, so yeah, I mean, it's just like lots of conversations kind of mingling with people and uh, yeah, just, just, I, I kind of approached the whole thing as you have the interview that, you know, that was really the main thing uh, that, that, you know, your goal. And so I just went in very relaxed, I think, and was very excited just about the opportunity and, and trying to take it in and enjoy it. Um, and then the next day there's, you know, they just kind of do like one after the next interviews throughout the morning uh, into the afternoon. And I, I was like the second interview. So I like got up, got it, you know, over and done with, and, the interview went really well. Um, and then afterwards I was just kind of chilling uh, in this conference room and everybody would kind of filter their way in and um, after their interviews. And uh, yeah, I just, you know, just tried to take in the day and enjoy it. And, um, and uh, yeah, when they, when they announced that I had won, I was completely floored. I mean, like really, really totally shocked. Cause I, I really didn't uh, think that that was uh, a possibility, honestly. Uh, you know, I, I sort of believed in myself that I, that I could potentially do it, but I, I'm not sure I totally actually, uh, uh, you know, um, had comprehended that it could happen. It sounds like it's kind of a theme of your life a little bit. Like you have these incredible achievements, but you don't fully believe that you're capable of those. But that's not an uncommon thing for a lot of people too. Like just in terms of self-confidence and belief in yourself, uh, it takes people around us to kind of help us through that, like you said, you had mentors, you had people who believed in you and those people are so vital into your ultimate success. But um, I, I did notice that about you as a swimmer, uh, you did have a lot of doubts that um, didn't necessarily need to be there. I mean, I could understand why they were there, but at some point you do have to put those doubts aside and say, look, I'm, I'm capable of anything really. And I think throughout your life, you've proven that. And, uh, and, and your story is kind of the story of most common people is we don't tend to have a lot of confidence and belief in ourselves until those people around us instill those into us. Right. You know, I, I, I really appreciate you saying that. I mean, I, I think it's something that I have 
come to discover, uh, you know, through these experiences is that, uh, you know, really through the support of, you know, a lot of amazing coaches and my parents and, uh, and you know, and various mentors along my, my journey that I think, um, you know, it's, I've always sort of thought a little bit about it as it's this balance between humility and confidence, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and, and trying, I think always trying to approach life uh, with humility, uh, but also with the confidence that, you know, that you can do things that, um, that, uh, that are hard and they're challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that that, that confidence part was really, I, I, I know, I, yeah, I, I think I, you know, my, my parents definitely, I think sort of uh, instilled this sense of, uh, humility uh, for me as a kid when I was growing up, um, but I think it was really at Auburn where I kind of took on this uh, this notion that wow I, I I'm I'm way more capable of things than I than I um, maybe would have thought of before, and I think that's the component that I've carried on um, you know well after Auburn through you know it, it was something that I started to recognize once I got over to Oxford was that. I was surrounded by these incredible, you know, really bright, brilliant people and started to realize like, whoa, yeah, like I, I I'm one of these people, you know, I, I also can hang with these folks. And, um, and, um, and I think from a career standpoint now, like moving forward, it's something that I've really, um, you know, relied on in so many ways to think about, you know, what is it that I want to do with my life? You know, not just like, what's the next step, but what are the, what are the goals? What are the things that I want to try to accomplish, um, you know, uh, way down, you know, down the road in my career um, and, and really trying to kind of carry that confidence forward. Yeah. Well, I hope a lot of people can look at your story and, and um, see themselves in you in some way. I mean, the thing that has been most impressive about you and your life is the things that you just said, you put yourself at Auburn University, where you had choices to go to other places that could have been a little bit more comfortable. Then you put yourself at Oxford University with some of the brightest people in the world. You know, then you go to, to Harvard to study medicine. And it's like you're, you're putting yourself in these positions where you're challenging yourself to really get out of your comfort zone. And, um, and we could all do that in our lives, really. We should all do that in our lives. And so I think you're a shining example of what's possible for people. Um, I, I, we've got about 10 minutes left or so. I really want to spend some time on this whole COVID situation, um, trying to understand it a little bit more from, uh, from a doctor and from the medical side and maybe from even from the side of somebody that's on the front lines of it uh, for us sitting back at home who are kind of locked up in a way we don't get to see what you see. And um, I mean, how serious is this? Is is it really as serious as they're saying, should we be locked up in our houses? Uh, what's going on really? Tell me. Well, you know, there's uh, gosh, there's just so much to say. Um, you know, I, th- I think to your, to your question, you know, how bad is this? It's really bad. Um, it's, uh, you know, for, and I think what makes the virus so challenging is that for a majority of people who end up, uh, you know, being infected and, and having, uh, you know, COVID, um, they end up having, you know, what could be described either as asymptomatic and, you know, they, they just had a positive test and that's all they experienced, no cough, no fevers, no nothing to maybe kind of a bad flu-like illness. Uh, and, and I've taken care of a lot of patients who have had, you know, a, a cough and some flu and some fever um, to, you know, ICU level care and, and death. Obviously, we know there's been, you know, over a quarter million deaths. Um, and, and that's, you know, absolutely horrifying. Uh, but those patients are the ones that I think about. Um, and, and so when it comes to, you know, how do we try to think about this, I think we really have to think about the patients who are, uh, who are doing the worst, right? Um, you know, I, uh, to try to shed a little bit of light on what that looks like more viscerally in the hospital. Um, you know, when I was in the COVID ICU back in April, we were kind of going through a surge. I was on the night team. We had uh, about 20 patients in our unit, uh, all on ventilators. Um, and a number of those patients were, um, we're on uh, what we call ECMO or extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. So this is a, it's a machine that basically takes over for your lungs. Um, mm. So, so you basically uh, take all the, all the blood that's circulating through your body 
and you, and you send it through this ECMO machine and the ECMO machine uh, oxygenates the blood for you, right? So it just takes, takes away your lungs completely. Mm. And so for patients to get extremely sick with COVID, uh, that's, some of them will end up on ECMO. Um, and I remember we had a, we had a patient the first night that I was in the COVID ICU We had a patient who was a very, very well-to-do guy, um, uh, who, you know, not, he was probably in his fifties and, um, and he had been on the ECMO circuit for a number of days and he wasn't, wasn't doing well. He was, he was really deteriorating overnight. It was about, you know, 2 AM and it started to look really bad. And, and I ended up having to, to call his family and say, uh, you know, family hasn't seen him. And, and at this point it probably been like two and a half weeks, three weeks since he'd been in the hospital, they hadn't seen him since. And I remember, uh, you know, telling them that they needed to come in uh, to the hospital because our hospital had a policy that visitors couldn't come into the hospital unless uh, a patient was within 72 hours of passing away. Mm. And so I, you know, I, I told them that they, they needed to come into the hospital right now because uh, we really weren't sure whether or not this patient was going to make it. Um, that happened pretty much every night um, for, you know, while I was in the, in the ICU, in the COVID ICU, those types of calls, um, you know, calling, calling patients' families every night because they couldn't see their family. And, and so I had to call them to let them know how they were doing. Um, and that was something that I did every night for, for patients. Um, so when I think about, you know, how bad this has gotten, you know, you see the statistics on TV, you see uh, the way in which, you know, some of our leaders ha have, um, you know, ha have kind of responded to mm -hmm. this. Those are the patients that I think about. Um, and when I think about, um, you know, how, uh, you know, how, how we all have to kind of try to approach this, I think it's, um, it's really thinking about many of those people. And, you know, in, in many ways, I think the, the, uh, the pandemic has really forced us as a society to think a lot about, you know, uh, you know, who we are as a society, how, what, you know, how we, how we all rely on one another and, and how we need one another. Um, but also it's, it's really shown us that there's still a lot of, of, you know, uh, real disparities in our, in our world. And, you know, uh, particularly in our hospital, but in a lot of hospitals all over the country, you know, uh, people from more marginalized backgrounds have been, you know, much more significantly impacted by this than, uh, than others. And so I think that it's really hard for folks to, to kind of process all of that, uh, all of the, the, the challenge and the pain and suffering that's come with the pandemic um, when it's not impacting them directly, right? When it's not personally impacting them. Um, but, uh, but, you know, my experience has been that this has been a, it's, it's an atrocity. It's really, um, really horrible with what's going on across our country have you had it have i no no um i i have not um i've had some family members who have and you know i'd say really you know we're we're seeing this big surge that's happening in the last couple of weeks um and i would say just kind of uh really i mean uh throughout the pandemic i've had sort of friends and, and family friends who, who've gotten it throughout the um these months and, uh, you know, receive calls and, and, uh, and, and texts fairly regularly, not so much for medical advice, but just to sort of get, you know, an additional perspective or kind of hear, um, you know, you know, kind of ask me questions about things. Um, and that's really picked up in the last couple of weeks of just yeah. a number of uh, family friends and, and folks who I'm close with who've had parents or grandparents or cousins and, you know, who, who have been infected and are, are, um, you know, now hospitalized or, um, you know, getting sicker, basically. Let me ask you a couple of ignorant questions. Do masks work or are there better forms of masks? Should we be wearing a certain type of mask or is it anything like I hear so many different things about masks? Well, there's a, there's a big spectrum, you know, I, there's obviously, uh, you know, sort of what we would call respirator masks. So, you know, N95 masks, those are the, what we wear in the hospital when we're in, you know, if, when I go to see a COVID positive patient in a hospital room, I have an N95 mask on and, and that's probably the most protective, uh, you know, sort of mask you're going to get. There's other types of respirators, you know, these hoods and, uh, and other things that you can wear, but, you know, as in terms of masks, you know, those are really uh, quite good. Um, but then, you know, the surgical masks are definitely better than say your bandana, right? So there, there's sort of a spectrum of like, 
you know, wearing, you know, a bandana over your mouth compared to, you know, wearing an N95 and a surgical mask or multi-layered cloth mask is, is going to be better. Um, you know, and, and I think the way to think about it is both in terms of, um, you know, uh, playing offense and defense, right? You know, the mask, uh, particularly the respirator mask is good at both, right? You're, you're protecting yourself, but you're also, you know, protecting, um, protecting others in terms of uh, not spreading the droplets. Um, whereas, you know, uh, things like a, you know, like a surgical mask or a cloth mask are not going to be as good from a defensive standpoint necessarily, but they're definitely going to be helpful from an offensive standpoint. So you're not going to, you know, if you are positive, you're not going to be spreading it to others. Um, but, you know, most of the data so far has, uh, you know, has shown that, um, that they're, they're fairly, you know, helpful uh, uh, in terms of protecting uh, folks. Are you going to get a vaccine as soon as possible for you personally? Yeah, um, you know, we're starting to, you know, there, there haven't been any definite talks yet from my hospital about when we're going to get vaccines, but, uh, but they'll, uh, it seems like they're going to be rolled out fairly soon um, once the, the FDA goes through their clearance processes. Um, so I, I will likely get a vaccine in the next couple months. Is there one that you're, um, is there a particular vaccine that you're leaning towards or one that you feel more confident in any particular vaccine? Well, right now, the, you know, the, the two that are the sort of leading vaccines right now is the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, mm-hmm. uh, vaccine and then the, the Moderna vaccine. Those are sort of the two that have been um, advanced the furthest. The AstraZeneca vaccine is sort of also uh, uh, coming along as well. Um, you know, it, it's a little bit tough to say right now because there's been uh, really only the interim results that the companies have released in terms of what the efficacy of the vaccines are. You know, I, I do think there's a few more things that we that would be helpful to know. I would say generally, I think a lot of people may not have the choice in terms of what they what type of vaccine they get uh, early on because the, the supply is going to be so limited. Uh, but you know, I think you know, there's there's definitely more data that that would be helpful. You know, we really don't know. Uh, you know, is is one is one vaccine better than the other from a side effect profile standpoint or from a uh, you know does one provide better immunity than the other? We, we don't know those things. Well, if they uh, come to you and say, hey, here's the vaccine, you don't get a choice between the two or three. This is the one you're taking. Are you going to take any one of those three? I, yeah, I, I mean, I would at this point, I think just based on the interim results right now, it, you know, it, it seems to uh, be highly effective relative to, you know, other vaccines that we use. Um, and, and so, you know, given, especially given, I think the, the risk that, uh, that myself and, you know, most other healthcare workers uh, have in terms of uh, exposure, it, it's, um, you know, it's something that I would move forward with for sure. Let me ask you a question that's uh, relevant to all of us in the swimming world. Are swimming pools safe or can they be safe? Talk to me about swimming pools a little bit. Well, you know, I'm definitely not a, you know, sort of expert in this, but um, I think from sort of a technical standpoint, I'm I'm not sure I have um, a whole lot to provide beyond what the CDC recommendations are. Um, But it does seem like, uh, you know, Swimming pools in general are, uh, are are you know relatively safe. The CDC you know had their recommendations in terms of uh, in terms of people swimming in the summer, and, and it seemed like you know generally the thought was that um, you know the chemical reagents that are used to to treat um, the water is we know at least that they're um, that they do inactivate other coronaviruses. I haven't seen any studies that are specific to COVID nineteen, but they do. Um, they do inactivate other, other, uh, you know, like SARS-CoV-1, um, you know, but that being said, you know, I think that, I think really the important thing to think about, uh, in terms of not just, you know, with regard to swimming pools, but I think with regard to anything, uh, you know, all of our activities right now are kind of under this new, we have to think about everything that we do through this new kind of risk benefit kind of mindset, you know, is, is, you know, what are the risks associated with doing this thing? What are the, what are the benefits? And, uh, you know, like many things, um, the actual activity may not be particularly risky, but then in a certain, you know, context, then it becomes risky, right? Um, where, you know, eating at a restaurant outside might not be a particularly risky thing, but then you do it with eight other people and, you know, uh, you know in, in certain contexts, then it becomes a more risky activity. 
Um, so, you know, I think the way that I try to think about these types of decisions is, you know, what are the, what are the uh, risks that I can control individually mm -hmm. versus what are the risks that I can't control or that might be shared amongst other people, right? I can't control what other people do necessarily. Um, and so, you know, I can wear a mask, I can socially distance myself, I can, you know, try to limit the activities that I do that are going to put me at a, you know, higher risk of exposure, but I can't control what other people do. Um, I can't control, um, you know, how, you know, what other sorts of, uh, you know, mitigation efforts other people take. Um, and so I have to, you have to kind of think through all of these, you know, activities that you're doing, things that you're doing through that kind of framework. And I think what we're seeing is, you know, as this surge is happening, part of that, I think, is because, uh, you know, a lot of people are starting to back off a little bit on some of their own personal risks, you know, sort of risk mitigation efforts. Mm. Um, and, and so we're seeing some spread. And so then you see, uh, you know, governments starting to step in and trying to just kind of shut things down uh, on, on the sort of more collective uh, risk mitigation. So, uh, you know, to come back to your question, I mean, I think specifically the pools, I think, you know, if you're, if you're able to, you know, sort of control the environment that you're, uh, that you're in and, and you can sort of do that in a way that feels safe, um, you know, I, I think, again, it comes back to everyone's sort of personal decision-making process, but I think it sort of makes sense. What's your uh, feeling in terms of when we get a, a, a real grip of the, when we, when we get control of this in a way where the vaccines can be, uh, you know, handed out to anyone that wants them, what's the, where's the end in this for us? Uh, you mean sort of a timeline? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to say. I, I follow a number of, um, you know, academics and, and folks who are, you know, much smarter about these things than I am. And I think, you know, generally, it seems like the, the, the vaccine pipeline, given that these early, um, you know, the early trials have been quite positive, hopefully bodes well for additional trials that are coming through. You know, there's multiple other vaccines that are in development as well. So, you know, hopefully this will mean that, that there, that, you know, as more of these vaccines go through the trial process and, and uh, get clearance through the FDA, then there's going to be an increasing supply. Um, you know, some of the some of the folks that I follow are are talking about you know more uh, you know sort of early distribution to first responders, to uh, you know healthcare workers, mm -hmm. and to yeah. uh, you know older individuals in nursing homes, that kind of thing, over the next couple of months, and then more wide distribution, uh, you know, into the spring and into the summer. Um, so uh, that's, that's at least the sort of provisional timeline that I'm kind of operating on as well, that, you know, hopefully that's, you know, maybe, maybe it's a little bit optimistic, um, and there's definitely going to be challenges along the way, but I, I, I'm certainly hopeful that, you know, this time next year, we're, we're in a different place and we're able to hopefully, uh, you know, look back on this period of life as, uh, this, you know, sort of anomalous, uh, kind of world altering challenge that, uh, that, you know, we came together and, and we're able to get through. Just for the general person like me, uh, where could I go to get good information on the types of um, vaccines that might be coming out just to kind of feed my own knowledge? Yeah, I mean, I, so I think probably the, um, the, you know, most of the news media is following this extremely closely. Um, you know, I, I also follow, um, you know, uh, really kind of the, you know, as most people are, you know, follow, you know, folks like Tony Fauci. Um, uh, there's, you know, on Twitter, at least there's a number of folks on Twitter that are really, really good sources of information. Uh, Scott Gottlieb, is a guy on Twitter who is a former FDA commissioner. Uh, he's very active in terms of sort of spreading really great knowledge about uh, where we're at in terms of treatments uh, and, and uh, vaccines. Andy Slavitt, who is a former um, uh, director of the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services under Obama, he is also a fantastic person to follow on, on Twitter, always sharing a lot of you know, really great science-based, uh, evidence-based information about where we're at. Um, you know, outside of social media, um, you know, I, like I said, I mean, I, I think a lot of the, the news media is covering this quite well and, and sort of, yeah. um, you know, giving us a lot of insight. I imagine you retweet some pretty good information too. So give me your uh, Twitter handle so people can follow you. Oh yeah, sure. Um, so um, on Twitter, I'm Jordan A underscore uh, 
uh, MD. So um, yeah, uh, I, I try to share some uh, around this and uh, and around sort of other uh, other work that I do around healthcare delivery and, and healthcare improvement, uh, which is really what I spend most of my time uh, thinking about and trying to uh, to work on right now. Well, listen, man, it's very um, informative and, uh, and I love it. It's great catching up with you again. Good to see you. You look uh, just as you did 10 years ago. So I hate you for that. You don't look like you aged a single day. But uh, listen, man, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. It's great, great talking to you. All right. Take care, Jordan. See ya. Bye.